0: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And don't forget their website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word.com. There you can listen to old shows as well. Ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good, good, good morning, Scott talking about family investments
1: family investment trusts and oh. what i found you know that when you think about trusts uh, a lot of times people think oh it's complicated or it's expensive yeah. or i don't have enough money or um y- y- you know so at your first result uh, reaction is it just seems there's so much in terms of going on there that i wouldn't even bother looking at it or considering right. it mm-hmm. and um So a lot of times it's, you know, it's up to Don and I to actually make people aware of this as a strategy and then trying to understand for each client situation, is it actually something that can be used Mm -hmm. and, and even stretching above the parent to grandparents. Um, it tends to be, I think, an excellent way for grandparents to contemplate how they could help grandchildren in Mm -hmm. particular. And um, and it reminded me this week, because I met with a a couple uh, and they have uh, four grandchildren now, Mm -hmm. and in their will, they are contemplating uh, leaving all the money to the grandchildren. So they're going to bypass, you know, our kids have done very well, you know, both of them are successful and, um, they don't really need our money to be able to, uh, carry on their lifestyle. Yeah. So. Good for them. I know. Yeah, yeah, so that's great. great. You know, everybody, mm-hmm. they obviously, um, instilled the right values. And now do the kids know this? Yeah. So I think that they will eventually. Uh, so there's, will, they have sure time. Yeah. They haven't, they have <laughs> Eventually they will. <laughs> they haven't right. pulled the trigger yet. Yeah. <laughs> 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 at some yeah. point they will, yeah. but I thought about it and I, I think once they speak to the lawyer, they might, they might uh, soften that position a little right. bit and something to the, their children and then maybe the majority to grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, what it got me thinking about for them was why are we doing this at death? Why can't we? Why don't you consider doing yeah. it now? And why would you do it now? Because the kids and, will find out about and it. And what are the advantages? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we don't want to cause any problems. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, the, and then that that sort of gave them. And then the thought around that was, you know, if your if your net worth is four million dollars or five million dollars, what if we took a million of that? And we executed something, a trust, a family trust where you could benefit the grandchildren today. Uh, and that still leaves a significant estate for your children or through your will, you can still leave it to the grandchildren, Mm -hmm. but there's significant advantages to you as a grandparent. Um, and, and who, so when you think about trusts and who are they right for, the first thing is these are for individuals who have money or cash or investments that they feel they don't need to maintain or fund their lifestyle. Right. So they've reached a point, at, right. and, and Don and I often will verify this, in terms of doing our um, financial planning analysis to see how what the outcomes are, what might be their final expenses, mm-hmm. what might be the cost of long-term care, and we can run all the the bad what-ifs in terms right. of future costs and uh, and give them a picture of what likely to be left over. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, that's, it, it, that ends up value in their real estate, right. their home gets transferred to the next generation if they've spent their assets. So in this case, there was definitely money going to be left over. Um, the next thing would be is the desire to create a fund or to uh, create a fund for the next generation. And the third thing as to who would be good for is somebody who wants to help out, a desire to help fund school. Extracurricular expenses for their um, for their child or or in this case grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So, and I hear that a lot. You know, I'll have parents say to me, "Well, oh, the grandparents have said they want to help out with um, private school or with daycare or with um, uh, university post secondary mm-hmm. education." So, it's a that's a fairly common thought process, and then the question is how best to execute that right. to make sure that that it's a win win for everybody.
0: Do many people? Um uh, look to giving uh, uh, their uh, estate to the grandkids as opposed to through the kids and, and then just let the kids do it through their own will for the kids. I know are, are there many bypassing that and going to yeah I think the that's less
1: less less people less clients that I've talked to are interested in doing a complete bypass right. of their children to right. the next generation. But I can tell you that grandparents are very motivated to help grandchildren in in most cases. Um, And I think that, you know, there's always a sense that it's going to be harder for them or more difficult for them or, you know, entering the real estate market, uh, the job market, Mm -hmm. education, and not having, you you know, student loans, all of those things. Mm -hmm. I think there's a real tug and pull at grandparents hoping to see their grandchildren be successful and have, and, and, I guess not struggle as much in, right. in some sense, or have that stress or worry. Mm. So it is it's really happening. It's a leg up, you know. It's, it's yeah, a leg it's, up opportunity, a, sure. as
2: opposed to kind of getting out of a hole for five years. Yeah. And after then graduating, after graduating, yeah, exactly. you're starting flat, no, yeah. no debts. It's yeah. such a great position to be in. And then you're just accumulating wealth from there. So. Right. So we talk about who. The, what's the why? The why is really to enhance
1: the accumulation of capital for your grandchildren in this case and do it in a tax-efficient manner. And the other reason would be to reduce your after-tax cost of paying for those sort of non-essential expenses, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, as I said, could be extracurricular activities, it could be, um, you know, moving into a, a private school scenario. So, there's two types of trusts that you can consider uh, as a grandparent for your grandkids. The first one is would be a separate trust for each grandchild, and we call this an age 40 trust. And an age 40 trust, one of the unique benefits of this is that when you put money into a fu- into this trust while your grandchild is under the age of 21 any income interest dividends capital gains that the investment earns inside this age 40 trust is going to be deemed to be taxed in the hands of your grandchild right and so the benefit is is that as we, and we talked about this in previous shows but you can earn up to about twelve thousand twelve thousand five hundred dollars in Ontario and pay no tax, right. if that was interest income. If it's dividend right. income, it's around 30000 and if it's capital gain income, it's around $24,000 a year, mm-hmm. and pay no tax. Right. So right off right off the bat, you can see, uh, for a lot of grandparents in this case, they're being taxed at the highest marginal tax bracket, it's 53%, so you're going from paying 53% on your investment income down to 0%, mm-hmm. effectively, mm-hmm. if you can structure right. it right. Mm-hmm. Um, And then, um, so each, and that income is reported on the beneficiary's return and once they reach age 21 and older, then the income and the gains must be paid out of the trust to the individual so that it's taxed in their hands. So prior to 21, it can stay and be reinvested and still be taxed to the child, the grandchild. Once they're over 21, it has to physically be paid out to them so that it's then taxed in their hands. If you leave it in the trust and you don't pay it out after age 21, then it's taxed at the highest marginal tax bracket, 53%. So they're sort of back to square one where they started before. So it's important to follow that. Then at age 40, Uh, the remaining capital that's in the trust has to be paid out and the whole thing is wound up Mm -hmm. and that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. So it's something that it's going to likely carry on past the death of the grandparents. And so it's important when you set it up, you'll have a trustee and person guiding it and a substitute trustee after your death, et cetera. And the money that goes into this trust can either be done as a, as an outright gift Mm -hmm or it can be done as a loan. And we're gonna talk about that in a second too. The second type of uh, trust is what we call a discretionary family trust. And this is simply gonna be then one trust with multiple beneficiaries. So in this case, they had four grandchildren, one trust, all four of them are named in that trust as beneficiaries. And, you know, they can. This is probably the preferred route if you've got multiple grandkids, um, just for ease of administration, etc. Yeah. Uh, you can sort of do the exa- exact same effect. The trustees, which in this case are their grandparents, they have full discretion over the allocation. So, if one person needs more money, you know, particularly this year, and another a different year, uh, they don't have to all be treated equally. And um, the main thing is that the annual income that's taxed on the trust is when they're under age 21, is going to be taxed at that highest rate, at Mm -hmm. 53%, unless it's paid out to the beneficiary. So this is the difference between the age 40 trust and the discretionary family trust, is that the age 40 trust has that flexibility under age 21 to let the money grow and compound, whereas this trust, it must be paid out and used for a purpose uh, such as private school, extracurricular, post-secondary education. So it physically has to be paid out. So we talked about funding and that one option is to just gift the money mm-hmm. into this uh, account. But a trust is created by something called a settler. And a settler is a third party. So Scott, if I wanted to start a trust, I could ask you to be the settler of the trust. And it usually all it does is just establish the trust from a third party and you might... Um, it might include a gold coin. Mm-hmm. It might include uh, a fifty-dollar bill, right. and that that coin or that bill is just kept in the file. It's never deposited um, because any income that's earned on that token to open the trust, it, and if it earns any income, it would be taxed back to you right, as right. as the settler, the third mm-hmm. party. So we don't want to keep we don't want to have to mm-hmm. burden you with any of that. So often a gold coin or just a a, a fifty-dollar bill is enough to get it started. So if you do a loan, uh, you can do a loan, and this is generally the preferred way, the way is the loan because the loan gives you flexibility to be the trustees and look after it and, uh, and maintain a little more control. Uh, if you charge no interest, so it's a loan to the trust to create it, uh, and we'll run through a quick example where you can put in 200 grand into this uh, 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 an age40 trust, then all the income reported um, to the lender has to be it's all reported to the lender. So any interest, dividends, and capital gains comes back to the grandparent. If you do it as a loan with an interest rate, and what we often recommend is the prescribed rate loan. Right. And prescribed rate loan is a CRA amount and it's two percent that you must charge the trust for this loan. So each year, uh, if you loaned it 200 grand, you'd have to pay four grand back to the grandparent right. to make it a legitimate situation and the trust can deduct that interest. Uh, and the grandparent would report it. So, you know, so the, I think what you end up looking at when we, we, did an example on an age 40 trust. And so in this situation, um, We talk about Antonio and Maria, they had a Mm five-year-old granddaughter and they loaned $200,000 to a a trust established solely for her. The trust has the discretion to distribute income and capital to the granddaughter at any time and any amount subject to condition that all the capital must be distributed prior to her 40th birthday, the age 40 trust. If the granddaughter fails to survive. Then, until the final distribution, then a contingent beneficiary can be can be named. So, based on an annual return of four point seven five percent, the investment of two hundred thousand generates about uh, ninety five hundred dollars a year, and that two percent of uh, interest has to be paid. That's four grand a year, and by the time we look at a at a spreadsheet over the next ten years, the difference on that two hundred grand. Uh, by the time she's 15 is about $30,800 more Mm -hmm. in the age 40 trust than there would have been if the parents had, grandparents had just kept that money, invested themselves and pay tax on it. Mm -hmm. So it can be a significant tax and that's all tax savings, right? And
2: and the biggest difference if they just gave the money to the minor, they would have to, they would earn, the, the child would earn interest and dividends. And unfortunately, then there would be attribution rules. All, pay, all tax back to the grandparents. Yeah, yeah, so going through this trust avoids those attribution rules. Yep. Right. And therefore makes a lot of sense, $30,000 difference. Absolutely. There. Mm-hmm. So, age
1: 40, trusts and discretionary trusts. If you're a grandparent looking to help out your grandkids, what a fantastic strategy.
0: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905 529 7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Turkey, uh, talking about your personal pension plan.
2: Yes, your personal pension plan. The reason I called it this, it's really AKA. It's mm-hmm. RSP time. Yeah, yeah. Tis the season. We've got the last couple of weeks of February, Yeah, and it's kind of interesting, the reason I, I I want to change the title is RSPs have seemed to take a bit of a bit of bad wrath right now. Mm. Um, people aren't talking about them as much. They're, you know, they're thinking, should I go in our uh, TFSA? Um, you know, what about all the tax you pay at the end? And, and they seem to be getting slightly less popular, let me say, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's all their alternatives too. So I'm just saying I've yet to hear anybody complain about their pension fund. Mm-hmm. If if they're say a police officer or a nurse or a teacher or what have you, generally public service, they are so proud of their pension plan. Yeah, they know they're going to get X amount of dollars per month, mm-hmm. and and that they you know no problems at all that they're putting all this money into the fund, and yet they may never really get much money out of it, mm-hmm. depending on their life expectancy. So put it this way: let's say you were to build a million dollars into your RSP, mm-hmm. and then you live for. Ten years took out you know maybe four or five percent out of it per year and then you died and if you didn't have a spouse it would be it would just be disappeared yeah as a pension it would be gone mm-hmm. but if it's an RSP at least the beneficiaries get to get some of it right okay so a pension fund upon the second death because normally with a pension fund you know I say a teacher's pension fund is worth at least a million dollars okay about one million to 1.2 million, depending on what interest rate you use, and then if they live 10 years and there's no beneficiary, that's it. Yeah. There's no extra money for the kids. Mm-hmm. They've put in a ton of money into this thing. Mm-hmm. They put 10 between 10 and 12 percent of their pay for you know a good part of 30 years, mm-hmm. and it's built up to a, a sizable amount of money. But nobody ever complains that. Wow, well, you know what? Um, I the, the Joe didn't live very long, but he had a good pension, mm-hmm. and the money just disappeared. Yeah. So nobody ever talks about that side, but boy, if an RSP's, oh boy, you know, Joe died and he left a million dollar RSP. Oh, he should have seen all the tax he paid on that. Yeah. Well, even if you paid fifty percent tax on which is quite likely on a million dollars, because the highest tax rate, as we've talked about, Andy just mentioned, is fifty-three and a half percent. So you would lose about half your money to tax. At least the beneficiaries get the other half. Right. Now, if you're if you have a spouse, common law or married, the Whole RSP gets transferred to the spouse. Mm-hmm. Generally, pension funds, the spouse continues to get an income, but normally it's sixty, sixty-six percent. Right. You have to pay extra to get more than that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so again, pension plan planning. <laughs> there's a there's a mouthful there, mm-hmm. but you know, we we talk about that. Which option should we take? And everybody loves them. But RSPs are your personal pension fund. Also, they are just as important. In fact, you can do quite well with them. In terms of what you do in terms of uh you know how you invest it withdrawal strategies you can actually get them out per, perhaps before having to pay 53 percent right okay mm-hmm. but the key no matter which way you go the nice thing about pension funds and i get, don't don't get me wrong i like them is that you never run out of money yeah they'll go as long as you live mm-hmm. so the ones that are living to 100 they really love them yeah but the ones that retired at 65 died at 75 they put a lot of money and they did not get their money's worth out of them right Okay, so there's pros and cons of pension funds. RSPs are cut and dry. You put money into them, they grow to a certain amount. And if you spend all the money, you ran out. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) if you left money on the table, it's taxed. it goes to your spouse, and uh, he or she will continue to get an income. And then upon their death, then it's taxed and goes to your beneficiaries, hopefully Mm -hmm. your kids. So interesting how it works. But if I had to say uh, kind of the rules, number one thing in terms of uh, your RSP plan, is maximize that work plan. Mm -hmm. If there's any matching, it doesn't even matter what tax bracket. Now, quite often you always want to get the spouse to maximize their, you know, one spouse let's say is making 100,000 a year and the other is making 50. Well, if you're making an RSP contribution, you want to get the the deduction off the higher income earner, okay? The only exception to that, I would say, if there's matching, if that $50,000 spouse Is getting a 50% you know puts in five percent and they get five percent matching use it yeah they're getting a hundred percent you know i we cannot get a guaranteed 100 percent return on your money yeah and that will more than offset the difference in tax rates Mm -hmm. so always max out uh, max out the uh, work plan number two if your financial planner is not looking at tax brackets when they're when they're um, deciding who should be getting the rsps and how much you should put into an rsp They're really not doing their job Mm -hmm. it's not just simply say well my nose of assessment says i can put x amount of dollars in and therefore i'm going to Mm -hmm. well let's say you made a hundred thousand well and the tax bracket ends at 95. well you maybe only might want to put five five thousand in because if you're getting a raise next year and let's say you're going to make 110 the following year that will leave that a higher bracket say it's 43 percent in that case your whole 15,000 next year you should be putting in. Mm-hmm. So five this year, 15 next year. And it's all about tax bracket management. So looking at the upgraded tables every year in terms, because they do go up by inflation so that they, they're not stagnant and they go right down to the dollar. Um, normally, you'll, you know, people will say, well, my accountant, he'll figure it out. Um, to be honest, I would say they will not. If they see a tax slip and you're giving them all your tax stuff, they will simply deduct it. Yeah. And quite frankly a lot of the time they are hiring other people to do your tax returns that's mm-hmm. a, such a busy time of the year right. they're not they're just trying to get your lowest tax possible right. even though it might have made sense to put off some of that RSP contribution room to the next year mm-hmm. so uh, as far as the limit goes for 2018 it is if you make 145,722 uh, back in 17 your 18 room was 26,230 Mm -hmm. So that's how much you could have contributed to your RSP that isn't normally the case. What people look at anymore. It's your notice of assessment, Mm -hmm. take out your notice of of assessment, find out how much room you have and really talk to your financial planner, work out the strategy. How much should you put into an RSP? Should you put it all into an RSP or perhaps there should be a, some of it could go into a tax free savings account. Mm -hmm. Okay. And maybe there's a mix between the two of them. It really comes down to the tax brackets. And there's a lot of other you know, benefits of a TFSA over an RSP, um, such as it's not quite as sticky. Mm-hmm. So if you want to take it out and you've got a big reason to pull that money out, then it's a uh, tax-free savings account. So you can pull it out and say, buy a car with it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exactly why an RSP is actually good. Mm-hmm. Because you can't buy a car with it, yeah. okay? <laughs> you'll, pay, you'll pay a ton of tax. Mm-hmm. And this is why pension funds do so well. People never cash in. You can't cash in a pension fund. Yeah. Imp- if you ever went to superannuation or Hoop or Omer's and said, "You know, I got a bit of a family emergency. I need twenty grand," mm-hmm. they'd say, "Yeah, that's nice, but go get a bank loan."
1: Yeah.
2: An RSP, you can still cash in an RSP, mm-hmm. even though it's taxable. So, uh, and unfortunately, we do see people make some unwise decisions as far as RSP planning, where probably getting a bank loan would have made more sense. Mm-hmm. Now, the opposite. If there's a uh, unemployment and you have a very low income year then there may be a lot of strategies on why you should pull out the RSPs while you're in a low income it's like almost a employment insurance mm-hmm. and maybe are on spousal leave and you've been putting money into an RSP and now you're taking a year off and you spend time with the kids while well, your spouse is still making lots of money maybe you can pull out yours out of your RSP and put it into a spousal RSP to give your spouse a deduction take it out at you can make about fifteen thousand a year, tax-free. Take fifteen thousand out, maybe even twenty. Pay a little bit of tax on it, and put the twenty into a spousal RSP, and then maybe save it a, a far higher bracket. Again, it comes back to tax bracket management. So, and then on the way out, and Andy and I have talked about this many times: withdrawal strategies. So, when you do turn sixty, or you're going to retire, it's definitely a time to sit down with a financial planner. How should we pull this money out of the RSPs? Should we defer the Canada Pension Plan? Should we defer old age security? You know, because you might have actually too much in RSPs. Mm-hmm. And, there's, and there's some benefits on deferring the other ones so you can pull the RSPs out before getting clawed back on your old age security. Mm-hmm. But again, this is where you sit down and really crunch the numbers. So I've given an, ex- an example right here. Let's say you're 30 years old and you just had twins, okay? And you... Wanted to put ten thousand into an RSP. Now, first of all, you're, you've waited. You're, you've got a decent job. You're waiting until thirty. You, you got some cash flow, and you got ten thousand you put into an RSP, and you're at a forty percent tax bracket, which coincidentally gives you a four thousand dollar refund. Well, the RESP for the kids, your two twins, are uh, two thousand dollars per year. Mm-hmm. So let's put in the two thousand into the RESPs each year. Well, the government. Nice, nice with those RESPs, they give you 20%. So what you're doing is you're doubling up on these deductions. Mm-hmm. You're getting 40% from the government plus a 20% grant. Now fast forward that until they are 40, you're now 48 years old. And if you made 6% on that RSP, by the time you're 48, you've got $327,000 now. Sitting in your RSP from the two grand, no, from the ten thousand. Oh, 10,000, 10, a year into yep. the RSP. The kids, they're ready to go to university now. They have sixty-four thousand dollars each in their RESPs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just by putting that tax refund in each year. So now you've covered two of your financial goals. Most new parents want to see their kids educated. Perfect. So we're going to put money into the education plan, but we're going to build up your your retirement, your personal pension fund at the same time. Well, let's continue going. Well, now you you continue adding. Let's say you stopped adding for some reason that 327,000 by the time you got to 65 would be worth about $900,000. Hmm. Okay. Just by starting early. It's just the compounding effect of money. The kids are now out of university, you don't have all those costs and so forth. You've actually still got that 10 grand a month, uh, a year rather, $10,000 a year that you still can add to an RSP you've done it for this long and might as well keep going. That will be build your RSP up to $1.2 million. So decent amount of money. Mm-hmm. Well, you still would have this tax refund. Well, instead of putting that into the RESP, that tax refund of 4,000 every year, let's put the 4,000 into a tax-free savings account, which would grow to about $100,000 by the time you're 65. Mm. So here you are, 65, all you've done is invested 10000 a year, you've put your th- kids through school and in w- and really a minor speed bump going to university because mm-hmm. you've built up a lot of money. You've got $1.2 million in your RSP. well that, that would create an income at 4% of $48,000 a year. Not bad. You're still going to get your Canada Pension Plan mm-hmm. and old age security. And you're able to split that with your spouse, so $24,000 each. You're only going to be paying 20% tax on the withdrawal of that money. Mm-hmm. You saved at 40%, paid at 20%. I, st- I don't un- you know you got to pay tax on RSPs. It's all about managing it. It's so important. And on top of that, you've got an extra hundred grand in your TFSA's. Well, since you've been such a great saver, you can go take that world trip with that TFSA if you like. Mm-hmm. Reward yourself. Or that could also create about a four thousand dollar per year income. Um, for life, tax-free, out of the TFSA. Who said RSPs are bad? Exactly. <laughs> you know? Who started that rumor? Yeah. It, it's just that it, you don't hear, like before you go back, you fast forward about you know 10 years ago, everybody was talking about RSP season right now. Mm-hmm. It seemed to be yeah. oh, lineups basically at the mm-hmm. banks this time of year, and it seemed to have st- slowed down. Now, I, I must say most people are doing more at work, mm-hmm. okay, and a lot of people are packing, which is the best way, pre-authorized checks. I mm-hmm. can say probably the tax-free savings account is a little bit of competition too in the last 10 years. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I can't, here's a, there was a simple is that
0: plan. Is though? Because again, it's not sticky. So ah, 10, exactly. 20 years from the down the road yeah. where will we start to see right, the, yeah. the result of that.
2: Well, that's a really
1: good point because it was going to lead into what I was going to talk Perfect. about. Perfect. <laughs> and we were, there was an interesting um, <clears throat> piece that was done and it was Google Canada produced a list of the most common searches related to registered retirement savings plans, re- related to RRSPs over the past 10 years. And so the, here are the top 10 searches that people looked at about RRSPs. Number one, what is an RSP? Number two- <laughs> how to withdraw an RSP, And there's the, there's, there's an issue right there. No kidding. Okay. (laughs) Actually the first. Number one, what is an (laughs) RSP? Number two, how do I get it out? Uh, Uh, Now that I have one of those, can I get it out quick? (laughs) Number three is what is my RRSP deduction limit? We're talking about notice Mm -hmm. of assessments and trying to find that. Number four, how do RRSPs work? And this comes back to tax brackets and tax bracket planning. Uh, five, what does an RRSP stand for? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Registered Retirement right. Savings, Savings plan. plan. Number six, how much should I contribute to my RRSP? Well, oh, back to our yes. tax bracket strategies again.
2: Eight, 18% of your income, and this year happens to be 26 to 30, but so few have maxed out their RRSPs. Go there's check out that. Yeah, there's yeah. Your, we're seeing people with well over a hundred thousand, like sometimes two hundred thousand of RSP room. Okay.
1: Number seven, and maybe Google doesn't quite understand what RSPs are either. The, <laughs> question, the question was, what is a GIC? Mm. <laughs> well, I guess a GIC, a Guaranteed Investment Certificate, is an investment that can go inside your RSP. Right. It can be one of your choices. Uh, number eight, what is a spousal RSP? That's a good one. A lot more, a little more complex, and a little bit of confusion there. Number nine, uh, how to withdraw an R. RRSP without paying tax. Mm. <laughs> that was a popular yeah. one. And number 10, what is the RRSP deadline? And so, coming back to stickiness, which you were talking about, TFSAs versus RRSPs, um, a bit of the research done, um, and this was done by uh, uh, the Globe and Mail, they talked about um, that one third, one third of people with RRSPs have made early withdrawals. Really? One third. So, mm. Even though we think it's sticky, yeah. there's a lot happening in terms of people taking, putting money in and then taking it out. Now, would um, you
2: say any one-third of your clients have taken money out of their RSPs? No. No, I would say the same. <clears throat> and I say that there's a difference of having a financial planner and not… Yeah. Because people are making the wrong decisions there. Here's
1: where it can happen a lot. And so they didn't break it down by age group. But if you're sort of under 30, what happens is, is that in most cases, it's because they've used the money to pay debts or cover emergency expenses. So right. something came along, they didn't have money. There was no other place to go. But I think what the issue is, is that maybe we're just a little too casual mm-hmm. about taking money out of our RRSPs. Mm-hmm. We're not really thinking about the implications of that over the long term. So... Anyway, RSPs are great. They help you. They can be a first-time home buyer. They can help you return to school. And, of course, they are a fantastic uh, foundation for your retirement as well.
0: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message, and they will return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from (laughs) IG Private Wealth Management. No switcheroonies here. <laughs> okay. uh, andyanddon.com is the website, andyanddon.com. And don't forget, 905-529-7165. You can call now, leave a message. They will return your call. Talking about RRSP season.
2: Yes, just wanted to finish off with that. And one thing that people might be forgetting about is spousal RSPs. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because now it's been quite some time now where you can split the pension money which you say the RIF money between the two spouses. Mm-hmm. So some schools have thought, so why, why do I need a spousal RSP? And because you know it doesn't matter if one person has 400,000, the other person has only 100,000, we get to split it anyway. Mm-hmm. I would never count the government on changing that rule for one. So there's one reason, because if they ever changed it back, saying, you know what, we don't allow income splitting on pension, then next thing you know is that will take away that whole idea of doing right. that. And spousal RSPs mm-hmm. become important again. Where in the spousal RSP, basically, to go back, and what is a spousal RSP, which is one of the Google searches, as Andy just mentioned, yep. it's basically let's say, as I use in the example, one spouse is making one hundred thousand a year, and the other spouse is making fifty thousand, and you're saying well, we want to get about the, the same amount of money in both RSPs. So what you do, the person that's making one hundred thousand, it buys an RSP. He's a contributor, or she's a contributor, to the other person's RSP. So in this case, let's say um, Julie makes one hundred thousand and Joe makes fifty thousand. Well, Joe, Julie would put say ten grand into Joe's spousal RSP, right? And so Joe's the owner; he will pay the tax when withdrawing it. Mm-hmm. She got the tax deduction right. for the for the ten grand. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's one thing. And the other interesting thing with spousal RSPs is there is a three-year three-year um, attribution rule. Mm -hmm. So you have to wait three years from the last contribution before it's taxed to that person's name. So in this case, Joe has to wait three years before he can pull that $10,000 out Mm -hmm. from the last contribution. So if it was done in 2019, you go 19, 20, 21, he could take out that 10,000 in 2022 Mm -hmm. and it would be taxed to him. Okay, but if it was taken out in 2021, the 10,000, that would be cut back in Julie's income would be added back to their or her income. So again, make sure you know about the attribution rules. The only exception is down the road is you can move that spousal RSP into a RIF, a spousal RIF. And as long as you take the minimum out, it always goes to the owner.
1: You don't have to wait the three years. You don't have to wait the three years. Mm -hmm. And
2: that's a great way. A lot of people don't know that. And it's a great way to pull out some money and give your, that lower income spouse some extra income. Mm
1: -hmm. I'm going to talk about retirement income and retirement in particular, the cost of long term care. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing to me about is when you look at all of the, the commercials and IG's guilty of this too. Everybody who's retired is always doing these fantastic things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> fantastic. Sailing on a boat. <laughs> they're all sailing on a boat. They're golfing somewhere. Mm-hmm, they're great on, time. they're on a hiking. Yeah. Um, into the mountains and uh, one big party. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's. <laughs> but you never see. Uh, you never see a depiction of the other stage of retirement which could involve long-term care you know is there a walker are we dealing with dementia Mm. are we um you know is it been stroke or or you know there's a lot of different issues that we deal in our health care and our health in our health in our lives as we as we age and um you know, for a lot of people, the last five years or the last 10 years, um, there's no hiking in the mountains and, yeah. <laughs> and traveling on river cruises and on out on the sailboat, uh, you know, for an extended, uh, mm-hmm. you know, ocean cruise. So, <laughs> mm. you know, that the reality of long-term care is that it's hard to sort of calculate, um, but the, I think for most of us who have now can experience, we've either had a parent or a grandparent who has faced uh, long-term care, and usually it's triggered by one of three things, and. It could be, um, that someone develops dementia and Mm -hmm. they can no longer be left alone or independent. Uh, or if it's, if it's a couple, then, um, maybe the one spouse can't provide the care anymore Mm -hmm. because they're, it's affecting their health or three, maybe they don't have a spouse or a family member to provide support. So somebody else has to, they have to hire somebody to come in or move into a long-term care facility. So if you think about how much, you know, people do want to stay in their home as long as possible. There's no Mm -hmm. doubt about that. But, um, you know, if you think about having home care a few hours a day, typically it's about $30 an hour for a a private home care service. So you're looking at about $1,800 a month for two hours a day, seven days a week. And then that you would have your access to, um, the provincial home care, um, services as well on top of that. And. And today, if you can't stay in your home or you couldn't afford that, the province of Ontario has a set rate that is for long-term care facilities, mm-hmm. public facilities. The basic rate is $1,848 for a ward room. So this mm-hmm. would be a shared room, uh, multiple, t- uh, multiple occupants. Uh, $2, $2,228 a month for a semi-private room and $2,640, uh, for a private room. Mm-hmm. So the government will subsidize anybody's long-term care up to that basic amount of $1,848. So nobody's on the street, You but you don't have very many options yeah. in terms of where you will go, uh, and it will be a shared space. So selling the family home often becomes a thought process in terms of paying for that long-term care and... You know, I was just meeting with a client this week who's now 78, 65 when she retired. She's on her own. We talked about long-term care. We modeled it in, in her retirement plan. She's spending less than she ever was before, interestingly enough. She's sort of done the go-go years now. <laughs> and uh, I told her she could spend more. She said, I don't really have anything to spend it on. Yeah. But, you know, saving for a long-term care scenario where I have somebody help me at home might, might work. But for her, selling the house is an option too because she's on her own. Right. But where you have a couple where one... It has deteriorated or one needs long-term care and one doesn't, still wants to be independent. That's where it gets tricky because you can't rely on the home. You basically are going to be operating two homes, the one who's healthy, still living there and doing their lifestyle, and the second who needs the long-term care in a facility that has to be figured out how to pay for it. Mm. And there's some great strategies around that too.
0: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson, Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management, 905-529-7165. Call now, leave a message, they'll return your call. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson, Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. And of course, they will return your call uh valentine's day uh last week we're talking about sexy money yeah yeah baby i wish (laughs) today was
2: valentine's day would have been better topic (laughs) so forget about the flowers you're getting money (laughs) not (laughs) quite and talking about money is sexy yes speaking from a financial planner wait a sec (laughs) viewpoint
0: if you're having a romantic evening and they uh, and someone starts talking about money is that sexy it could be, <laughs>
2: <laughs> it could be, because I can tell you one thing, the lack of money yes. is a romance buzz that's not yeah, sexy. Yeah, that's not sexy, okay. no fun there. <laughs> financial health, uh, health rather, is, and if you have very poor financial health, it does not lead to a lot of Valentine's days. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, money problems are the prime cause of 90% of divorces.
0: I believe it, yeah.
2: Okay, so if you're entering a relationship We're already in one, newly married. How do you talk about what could be the biggest elephant in the emotional room? Your personal finances as they are now and what you want them to be in your life. And this is really important, you know. So what you're recommending disrobe first, then have a conversation. (laughs) (laughs) It's an icebreaker. Might Uh, be hard to stay on the subject.
0: (laughs) All right, we're getting off track here. But
2: uh, you know what, funny enough, communication. Building trust and honesty are vital keys to a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. And that one of the biggest ones, if that's the case, then money is sexy. Yeah. Because you got to talk about this. It is mm-hmm. it is one of the things that's as interesting as it is for us, having that third party sit in the room and discussing money mm-hmm. is sometimes what is more needed. <laughs> wait a second. Wait a second. It's, it's a getting second. weird now. <laughs> 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 Possibly not in the scenario you were just talking oh, about. Okay. 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 <laughs> But it's it's just being open and honest with your partner, taking the necessary positive steps for building your relationship and a solid financial future together. And here's a few tips. Okay. Number one, never keep those big or small financial secrets. Hmm. They never end well. Okay. (laughs) They never end well. Each should disclose their assets, their financial commitments. It's a credit history, credit score. Yeah. you know what um it's almost like it should be on uh, my app when you're on. It's like here's my credit score on your dating you know? app <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's on your dating Ooh, app he's an
1: 830. Yeah. wow Wow-wee. he
2: or she's looking better all the yeah. time
0: mom's gonna like him
2: <laughs> um full disclosure is a must um you know sharing your credit card or applying for a loan together um your your partner's bad credit history can really lead to some unpleasant surprises mm. and trust me i don't know about you Andy. i'm sure the same we have had we've heard a few over the years yeah. mm-hmm. um, everything from having a post office box where a credit card would go to that the husband or wife didn't know about wow you know um, let me <laughs> tell you right now they're still ideas. not married <laughs> yeah <laughs> they are not married <laughs> anymore uh, no wonder. Okay. Uh, a gambling problem has has crept in yeah and all of a sudden there's no money right. there sure, right. so we've seen these things but again, recognize your differences. You might be a saver. Your partner might be a spender. They can still work together. In fact, it might be even more fun. Opposites attract. They, they, you're right, and I, I think of one particular client, and and he is far from a saver. He's a great spender. The, <laughs> thank God his wife is a saver, and and you know there was a lot of uh, friction at first but they have come to terms with it and they're having a great time and saving. Yeah. He gets an allowance, right? <laughs> you're right. Yeah, sure, like, sure. oh, when well, you're in the room, <laughs> You know, they're not your client. Anyway, it is how it works with them and he does get allowance and it works and everything mm-hmm. is great. So decide what's best to maintain, if you should maintain separate bank accounts, credit cards, investments, or merge them together. You know, every situation is different. I can't say there's one right way. Mm-hmm. Um, I know in my situation, we have one bank account. It's been joint. It's been joint from day one. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Andy. Oh, the separate bank account. But and this is what this is a,
1: a discussion that we had recently about this because if you're if you have a joint bank account and let's say uh, your spouse wants to buy a gift, so whether it's a birthday mm-hmm. gift, a Valentine's day, whatever it is, so basically that means that the person is always going to see yeah. what yeah. it cost mm-hmm. and what was spent. Mm-hmm. Now. The problematic could be A, you know, how much, but mm-hmm. number two, there's no surprises, right? Yeah. So there's no, right. it's very difficult to surprise somebody mm. unless you can kind of separate these things. Right. So that was an argument that came up and I said, well, you know what, after a few years, after you've been married for many years, that becomes less yeah. of a concern. Mm-hmm. So, but it, it is something that gets brought up periodically to me when mm-hmm. you when you when you talk about having one account versus yeah. separate.
2: Yeah, that that I would agree with that. But again, um if they do see the bay as a line, they don't know what was purchased at the right. bay. Right. So, uh, who decide who manages the day-to-day finances? Some some people have the skill set to do that yeah. and the other one may not. Mm-hmm. And that's just the, you know, the blessings of marriage, you know, you some people are good at one thing and others are not. So you 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 get the strengths of one and the weakness of the other and you sure. figure out who's good at each. Um, have that frank discussion about how you're going to achieve your financial goals, such as buying a house or starting a family. Talk about financial goals and do it regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, Not just the one-off. And it's like walking the dog once is, well, I got that out of the way. I don't have to walk a dog anymore. You know, and same with money. You have to do this on a regular basis. Yeah. Okay. So a marriage contract or a cohabitational agreement probably is not sexy. No. Okay. (laughs) No. (laughs) Probably isn't the most romantic notion that you can have. However, if things do go awry, it's the, probably the best kind of insurance you can have mm-hmm. to protect some of those assets. Particularly if, if one is the have and one is the have not. Mm-hmm. If you both don't have anything, like my wife and I starting from scratch, no biggie. Mm-hmm. But if one, you know, it's second marriages, this usually comes right. into play more often. And right. the tax savings, you know, you look at some spouse, I only find my tax return separately well there's some advantages sometimes filing them together such as charitable donations or medical receipts or or sharing you know ch- child benefits etc so extremely important to manage the tax time so if i could say one valentines gift i know it's post valentines day is give your your partners each of you a financial plan mm-hmm. that will help you with a lot of anxiety going forward and (laughs) I've wasted all this money
0: on roses (laughs) that's (laughs) sexy and that would be sexy
2: (laughs) (laughs) all right right, we've been planning your financial
0: future I'm Scott Thompson Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG private wealth management you can call now and leave a message they'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and take a peek at the website andyanddon.com thank you gentlemen thank you very much Scott have a great week